In your Bibles, you can turn to 2 Samuel, chapter 15. We'll make a little more headway than I have the last few weeks, and we're really, we're going to be done before Christmas, unless, I, unless I'm missing some things. I think we're, and then we'll be able to do Ephesians 6. Well, we'll probably do, we'll do a couple more Christmas-themed right around uh, Christmas Day. But then by pick, next year, we'll go back and finish up, wrap up Ephesians. So uh, 2 Samuel chapter 15, verses 30 to 37, as David is making his way out of Jerusalem. Uh, now we're kind of done with who's going with David. Well, actually, we're not quite done with who's going with David and who's not going with David. It's still David encountering people as he leaves. It reads like this. You can follow along beginning in verse 30. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai, the archite, came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant. Then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them there, Ahimahaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son. And by them you shall send to me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. So that's the next encounter that David has. So let's start with David is, I have now, he now ascends the Mount of Olives, and as he does, he's weeping. I write that he now ascends because he has been descending. David left Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the city on a hill. He descends the hill of uh, uh, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. Down at the bottom is the brook Kidron, and now he's going up the other side, the Mount of Olives. Just so you have kind of a lay of the land, the language of down and up. Down from Jerusalem, now up the Mount of Olives. He receives more bad news, this time about Ahithophel, who has defected. We already knew that. We were told Ahithophel, when Absalom proclaimed himself to be king, that Ahithophel had already joined, but David didn't know that. We, the reader, knew that, but David didn't know that. And this comes as a serious blow for the reason that I have on, on the screen, chapter 16 and verse 23, if you want to skip over and look at that verse, to give you a, a peek ahead. In chapter 16 and verse 23, it says, Now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. So I don't know if you've ever known anybody like that or had somebody like that, 
Uh, in this case, it wouldn't be just somebody who is unique or special to you. This is somebody who was known as particularly bright and insightful. And he's not called a prophet, so what he says is not prophetic. It's not like God is revealing this truth to him in some uh, divinely inspired fashion or way. But what he has insight to, it is as if you're consulting God because he seems so wise and able to grasp and analyze the situation and know how to handle it best. And David views this as a terrible blow uh, that, that his uh, counselor Ahithophel would have defected over to Absalom. David writes several songs, psalms about being betrayed by somebody who uh, was very close to him. In those psalms, he does not name the person Ahithophel, but a lot of Bible commentators believe when David writes about those things, that's who he's referring to. So it's kind of like Jesus was betrayed by Judas, by somebody uh, who, who was trained by Jesus, taught by Jesus, walked with Jesus, worked the same miracles that the other disciples worked. And then Judas is the one who betrayed him uh, in the garden. So he, he seems to be a little bit like that type of character. So what happens next then is that David prays that the council of Ahithophel would be defeated. And there are lots of ways that the Lord could defeat the council of Ahithophel. Uh, in my lifetime, uh, I have seen the church or people or probably even me uh, pray about somebody who I would love to see their council defeated. I would love to see uh, the influence they might have or exert be nullified. And a lot of times I think the way the church envisions that happening is like if God would just strike him, with, strike him dead or strike him with a terrible disease. And it's not like God couldn't do that. And it's not like God hasn't done that. Uh, King Herod in Acts, uh, who proclaimed himself to be like God, he was worshipped as God. And because he, he accepted that, God struck him dead. And that's happened in different times in different places. So God could defeat the council of Ahithophel in lots of different ways. Lots of miraculous ways. But in fact, the way it turns out is in the second part of verse 32, where you read the, the introduction, Behold Hushai. And I love those beholds ever since we were back in Isaiah, doing the last half of Isaiah. All those beholds in Isaiah. Like, get a load of this. Take note of this. Here's something we didn't quite imagine would happen. Behold, out of all the people he might meet at this particular time, behold, Hushai, and he becomes the answer to the prayer. It's wonderful when you easily recognize God's answer to your prayer. Uh, it's probably equally or even more wonderful when you become God's answer to somebody else's prayer. And both, both can be true. It's nice when you pray and you recognize how God is answering your request. Uh, I pray that I would more often see how God is using me to answer somebody else's request. I tend to be so self-focused, like probably most of us are, that we're more interested in God answering our requests rather than understanding how God may use us to answer a request that somebody else has. So behold, Hushai... The archite came to meet him with his coat torn and dirt on his head. And David gives him instructions. 
which we just read through about, look, apparently he's an old man. Uh, David calls him his friend at the very end, or he's referred to as David's friend. He doesn't call him that. He's referred to as David's friend. And so he gives him instructions to go back into the city uh, and to, to feign loyalty to Absalom. And because he will be part of this inner cabinet circle, anything that he discovers that might be helpful to him, send back word so that I know what's going on. So I can know what to expect or how to prepare. So it's this underground network that David is establishing. Now this is another case where David is trusting in the providence of God. And then he's also recognizing that God has given him Hushai to be the answer to his prayer. And you, I mean, I've heard this story so many times, it's, it's rather cliche, and so I hate to, to bring it up again, but it serves a good purpose about the guy that uh, is sitting up on his roof because of the flood, and he's praying that God would send him somebody to save him, and a guy comes by on a boat, and, and he declines because, you know, God, I'm praying to God, I trust God will save me, and another guy comes by, and eventually he drowns, and he goes to heaven, and he says, well, God, I, I kept praying that you would save me. And the Lord said, well, I sent two guys on boats. Like, why didn't you get in the boat? I mean, David prays, Lord, defeat the council of Ahithophel. But he doesn't, by praying that, it doesn't mean that he doesn't think that there can't be a natural means to how that God may fulfill that request. Both are true. Both are true. And so Hushai will become the answer to the prayer request. You'll see that play out in the next chapter. The first part of verse 32 is also interesting where it says, while David was coming up to the summit where God was worshipped. Uh, commentators are a little bit uh, unsure as to what exactly that means. David has left Jerusalem. He's gone down, down to the brook Kidron. He's now going up, up the Mount of Olives to uh, the summit where God was worshipped. Now, I know they worshipped God in Jerusalem. And the Ark of the Covenant is, is in Jerusalem. And the altar of sacrifice is in Jerusalem. And everything associated with the tabernacle is in Jerusalem. So I understand worship in Jerusalem. How is it that God is worshipped at the summit on the Mount of Olives? What does that look like? Now, I will not say that there is unanimity as to what uh, Bible commentators say. But I will tell you that the verb in Hebrew is a third-person singular. Now, that may not mean anything to you uh, just by telling you that's true. What it does mean that it's a third-person singular is that it really would be aptly translated, David was coming to the summit where he, third-person singular, where he would worship God. I think what I would suggest, my persuasion is, that on the Mount of Olives at this summit place, I don't know whether other people worship there or not, but I think David worshiped there. I think this was a place probably where David wrote a good number of psalms. It's a place where David, uh, at night, looked up at the stars. He's a little bit higher in a higher elevation. He doesn't have all the pollution from everybody's furnaces or fire, forest, their, uh, fires that they've kindled. He's looking up at the stars, and he, he's worshiping the God who, who set all those stars in place and named them. And they're exactly where God placed them as they orbit. It's a place where David wrote psalms of God's provision and psalms of, God, I need some help right now. 
Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a place like that. I don't know the scripture requires it or expects it. Um, I think the church is one place where we are meant to gather and, and recognize that the presence of the Spirit of God is uniquely among us as we gather together because no one individual can fully uh, express all the graciousness and the mercy and the wisdom of God. But when we get together, it's more, more fully expressed because God's mercy in my life is different from God's mercy in Ben's life and Rick's life and Sue's life and Joe's life and go down the list. We all are uniquely gifted. We all have unique stories and we bring it together and it becomes a more beautiful experience. I know when I was, uh, before I was married and I lived in Xenia, Ohio, as I was waiting for Cindy to finish college, I didn't finish it back then, uh, but as I lived in Xenia, Ohio and she'd go away for the summers and, and uh, there was a couple popular wildlifey area. Well, there was one popular wildlife area. I think it was John Bryan State Park. Is that right, John Bryan? And then the place that wasn't popular that was in Yellow Springs was a place called Glen Ellen. It was kind of associated with Antioch College. Antioch College was as liberal as Cedarville was conservative. Antioch College was, among people at Cedarville back when I was there, uh, it had a really bad reputation. And, and never the twain shall meet. Uh, Cedarville was considered a, a fundamental, you know, Bible-believing uh, college. Uh, Antioch College was more about hippies and, and experiences that you would have got kicked out for at Cedarville. But they had this nature preserve called Glen Ellen, and when Cindy would go away for the summer, that's the place I w went to because most, very few people ever went there, and it was a beautiful nature place. There were ravines and little bridges and there was this uh this big cement dam that had been been built back in the day that no longer really functioned anymore uh, but i would i would make my way to this dam and i would sit there and that's when i read all my aw tozer books and it was just me on the dam listening to the water all all the nature around me reading an aw tozer book and it was just a wonderful experience those are great memories i had uh, and for david he went to the summit on the Mount of Olives, and that's a place where he worshipped God. It was just a unique place for him. He wasn't the only one that ever worshipped there, though, because I think similarly, you could say that's where Jesus went. Jesus found uh, the Mount of Olives, a place where he would worship his father. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. So he would worship his father on the Mount of Olives. I can show you some verses for that. I will. Luke 21, verse 37 says, And every day he, Jesus, was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. The same mount that we just read about with David. I don't think this is accidental. I think this is purposeful. That these experiences David, the experiences he is having, are paralleled or in a much greater way, they're foreshadowing the greater experiences Christ will have about being betrayed, uh, about uh, he's the king, he's the anointed one, the king, and the people reject him, and the suffering that he experiences, but then his, his coming through victorious on the other end. Now, David, in many ways, it's of his own doing, it's because of his own sin. That wasn't true of Jesus, it was because of our sin he suffered. It was because of our sin that he cried out to his father in the way that he did. So they're not exactly alike, David is just a foreshadowing. 
of what Jesus experienced. So every day he's teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. So down from Jerusalem, across the brook, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who had betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. It's a place where Jesus frequented, like David frequented. One last reference. Luke's gospel puts it this way. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's the song we sang. I think David's praying the same thing. David goes, he's many times gone to this summit on the Mount of Olives and said, Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. As he's fleeing from King Saul. And now as he's fleeing from his son, Absalom. And Jesus prays the same thing a thousand years later with his disciples before Jesus is arrested and then ultimately crucified. Then in verse 37, in the verses we just read, it kind of ends with this. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. And I find that a little bit interesting because in chapter 16, beginning in verse 15, I think we'll be there next week, but don't hold me to it. If, if, we, if we go ahead to chapter 16, you're going to read the whole story about uh, Hushai coming into Jerusalem, Absalom coming into Jerusalem, the discussion they have. Uh, Absalom seems skeptical or suspicious that Hushai would uh, abandon David, his friend. But Hushai plays it off well enough that Absalom finds it believable. But we're told that ahead of time, the reader, we're told that ahead of time in verse 37. And I think the reason why we're told that ahead of time, even though the, the, the person writing 2 Samuel is going to give us all the details later on, he wants us to know that now because he wants us to connect the dots that Hushai is the answer to David's prayer. And this is, this is all God's doing. It's not all coincidental it's God answering David's prayer through these very material steps, physical steps, not supernatural, though God, is, God himself is above all natural causes, but God uses natural means to accomplish an answer to David's prayer. And he wants us to know how all this is fitting together just perfectly to answer the request. Verse chapter 17 and verse 14 reads this way. When Hushai gives his advice, and Ahithophel had already given his advice, it reads this way, And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. This is all God's doing. This is all God fulfilling his purposes in his way. And yet there's human means involved as well. Why did Christ suffer on a cross? 
Well, if you read Isaiah, it was the Lord that afflicted him. It was the Lord that struck him. But I could tell you that Judas was involved in Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. I could tell you that uh, the Romans were involved in Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. I could tell you that the Jews were involved in Jesus' crucifixion on the cross. All those things are true. But ultimately, it's the Lord's will that's being accomplished, even though other men may have their own sinful motivations for doing what they do. And they'll be held responsible to accomplish what God had determined beforehand to be accomplished. All that is true. At the same time, I think we're, we're seeing the same thing way back in David's day with Hushai and Ahithophel. Let's turn the page, chapter 16. And I will read the first four verses for the next encounter. You can follow along. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, a hundred bunches of raisins, a hundred summer fruits, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Ziba, Why have you brought these? Ziba answered, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on, the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, And where is your master's son? Ziba said to the king, Behold, Here's another surprising bit of news. Behold, he remains in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. That's the next encounter. We have two key individuals. The who's who of this is Mephibosheth and Ziba. Uh, you probably know something about Mephibosheth. The short story is Mephibosheth is the son of Jonathan. Jonathan is the son of King Saul, the first king. Uh, Mephibosheth is the only surviving heir of Jonathan, the crown prince of King Saul. King Saul and Jonathan both died in battle against the Philistines. Uh, it, was, it, was, uh, it was actually prophesied by that witch of Endor who said they were going to die in battle. They did. David received the news and David wept and mourned. And kind of uh, there's a lament for King Saul and for Jonathan. Jonathan was David's best friend before David himself became king. Jonathan, the crown prince, fully supported and recognized that the Lord had anointed David to be the next king. He didn't view David as competition or taking what belonged to him because Israel doesn't belong to King Saul or his household. It belongs to the Lord. So that was his closest friend. David, when he became king, after Jonathan and King Saul were slain, David wanted to honor a treaty or covenant he made with his best friend, Jonathan, that he would always show favor to Jonathan's house, to any... Any, anybody in his family, he would always extend favor to them. And so David found out that Jonathan had one surviving heir, son. His name was Mephibosheth. He was uh, crippled in his legs. Because when King Saul and Jonathan were slain by the Philistines, a nurse snatched him up 
He was five years old, and as she's fleeing, somehow an accident occurred. I don't know if she dropped him. I don't know if she fell herself. But somehow, uh, Mephibosheth was injured, and he became crippled at five years old. And he's never walked since. And David, when he finds all this out, David invites Mephibosheth to sit at the king's table. He will be part of the king's inner circle. He will enjoy everything that the king eats in his lavish dining room with all of his servants. Mephibosheth will be there. And he extends great favor and blessing to Mephibosheth, who actually uh, married and had children himself. Uh, and David extends that kindness. Ziba is originally a servant of King Saul. He now has been tasked by David with caring for Mephibosheth's property. So the story on Ziba is he was a servant of King Saul. He did very well for himself. He himself has, winds up having servants. He himself uh, enjoys a, a higher than average standard of living. And Ziba is the one that David uh, sends for to find out if Jonathan had any surviving heirs. And Ziba tells him about Mephibosheth. And so Mephibosheth comes. David extends all that kindness to him. Then he turns to Ziba and says, now I want you, your family, to steward the estate of Mephibosheth. Which it kind of sounds like would probably be a little bit of a downer. Because I think he, he thought he was completely now independent now that King Saul and Jonathan were dead. And David is saying, uh, I want you to care for all that, I've been, all that belongs to Mephibosheth. He's the rightful heir to everything that King Saul had. I want you to care for that. I've got some verses on there that if you want to skip back to chapter 9, I will read those. You're in chapter 16. If you go back to chapter 9 of 2 Samuel... It reads like this. 2 Samuel 9, verse 9. Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to his house I have given to your master's grandson. So I've given it to uh, Mephibosheth. Verse 10. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, according to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. That's kind of how that story plays out. Uh, those are the two individuals we're reading about. And then... In the what's what of what just happened, we see that Ziba extends this wonderful kindness to David in chapter 16. David has uh, hurriedly left Jerusalem. He's got hundreds of people in his charge or associated with him. Uh, he doesn't have a lot of provision. Preparation hasn't been made ahead of time. And Ziba extends this wonderful kindness to David. Now, David quizzes him as to... Uh, his intent, uh, where it came from, uh, but he finds Ziba's answer satisfactory so that David receives these gifts for, for his family members, for his men. He receives it as a gift, and then he, he winds up rewarding Ziba's loyalty where he says, 
all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. Uh, I read that in verse 4, chapter 16 and verse 4. Behold, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. Ziba's being rewarded for his loyalty even as Mephibosheth is being punished for his lack of loyalty. Or so it would seem. I can tell you uh, that all the Bible commentators I'm reading see red flags all over this. And they're not buying his story at all. Uh, a few of them really don't comment and say, we really don't know why Ziba did what he just did. A few will say that. Nobody exonerates him. Most people say things like he's an opportunist. He's calculating. He's lying. He's manipulating. In spite of the fact that David quizzed him a little bit. One in particular, Dale Ralph Davis, who is a, I'll show you his a very popular book he's written. Not very popular, but his probably his most popular book that he's written in just, just another slide or so. Uh, Dale uh, Dale Ralph Davis was a Presbyterian pastor for a lot of years, wound up being, and he may still be a professor of theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. I think there's one in Memphis. I think that's where he's at, but I could be wrong. Uh, he's, his, uh, he's got a lot of insight in Old Testament narrative. Uh, he's considered kind of an Old Testament scholar in a lot of ways. So Dale Ralph Davis says, it's simple, Ziba lied through his teeth. I mean, he, he just cuts to the chase. It's simple. He lied through his teeth. He's an opportunist. He's deceiving. David buys it hook, line, and sinker. And Ziba receives everything that previously had belonged to Mephibosheth. Let's read the rest of the story. Skip over to chapter 19. Chapter 19. That Paul Harvey used to tell, uh, some people I'm sure don't know anything about Paul Harvey. But he was a crazy good uh, radio commentator that went over the news, uh, seemed to have Christian values. I think he probably seemed to be a Christian. I really can't speak to that for sure. But he would do these little stories about, he'd tell you this story, and then he would say, and now the rest of the story. The part that, you like, you've heard this part of the story, the part you haven't heard, and then he, he fills in and gives it a lot more color than what you knew before. Well, here's the rest of the story with Mephibosheth and Ziba. I'm going to start with just verse 15. This is, the, this is David being restored uh, to Jerusalem. David, uh, Absalom dies. Uh, David is going to be restored to his kingship. Chapter 19 and verse 15 says, So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. Now skip down to verse 24. Verse 24 reads, And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me, for your servant said to me, said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like an angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. 
but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. That's the rest of the story. So who's telling the truth? Who's believing? Do you believe Ziba's story? That Mephibosheth believed that the kingdom would be restored to him? Or do you believe Mephibosheth's story, that he wanted to come, but Ziba deceived him and left without him, and because he's lame, he was stuck in Jerusalem? Or do you waffle? Anybody want to weigh in on it? We don't need the mic yet, but you can... Anybody want to weigh in? Who do you believe? David splits it. It's like David doesn't know who to believe. Mephibosheth, why? You know you're going to be in good company with Dale Ralph Davis. He said he's lying through his teeth. So you got somebody really good on your side. Uh, I think there would be no explanation for the fact that it's introduced by saying the narrator says he'd neither taken care of his feet nor trimmed his beard or washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. I'm thinking if Mephibosheth thought he would be king, he would at least clean himself up a little bit. And most Bible commentators will say it completely, I mean, sometimes we get delusional, so I guess you've got to allow for that. But other than the fact that you might be delusional, he couldn't in his right mind possibly think the kingdom would be restored to him. So that seems far-fetched. The fact that his state uh, when David arrives would suggest he's telling the truth. I think it's also telling, if you remember like the famous Solomon story, where Solomon demonstrates this wisdom of... of, uh, Two mothers that had children, one of which died because she rolled over on the child. And so the mother who had a child died switched the infants. And then uh, the next morning she saw that the child lay next to her, wasn't hers, and it was dead. And she realized the switch had taken place. And the other mother said, oh no, this is my child. I didn't switch. And so they went to King Solomon. And Solomon said, let the, let the surviving child be cut in half, each one gets half. And the real mother said, no, don't let that happen. Let, let the other mother have the child. Don't, don't slay my son. And Solomon determined from that that the child truly belonged to the woman that cried out. I think that's what Mephibosheth does as well. When, when uh, David says, I'm going to split the land equally, Mephibosheth is like, let him have it all. I'm just glad that you're home. I'm just glad that you're home. Uh, David doesn't exercise the same wisdom and insight that I think Solomon winds up demonstrating later. That's how I would take that story. So that's kind of where we're done. Now I want to do a few lessons and applications. Uh, And this is going to rely a little bit on Dale Ralph Davis. His, His famous book or his most known book is The Word Became Fresh. And this is how to read Old Testament narrative. Because he does a really good job at reading Old Testament narrative. And and you think you know the story, uh, especially if they're those famous stories, because you've heard them so long. And he's able to look at it with fresh eyes 
and he sees things that are easily missed, and it's just kind of invigorating to read somebody like that. That's what Dale Ralph Davis does. So a couple of applications which draw either slightly or heavily on some of his own applications. Number one, beware of what he calls Zebaism. Zebaism. And he defines Zebaism as the essence of Zeba's approach was to make an impression or an image and profit from it. And he talks about, uh, Dale Ralph Davis talks about, it can be, uh, it can be blatant Zebaism where he, he does this lavish thing, which is kind, it's good. David really did receive kindness from Zeba. Uh, Zeba had, I think, evil intent. But even though he had evil intent, it really was kind for David and his men, and it was the Lord's provision for that moment in time. Even though Zeba didn't mean it as a real act of kindness, Zeba meant it, as a way in which he could profit himself and be out from under the, the thumb or the responsibility of serving Mephibosheth. <clears throat> That's uh, what Dale Ralph Davis thinks. I think he's accurate in that. And what, what uh, Dale Ralph Davis does is he's, he comments on how often we give an impression. It's really not as kind as what it would seem, or sometimes it's received as that person is very kind, and really what I'm doing is I'm trying to manipulate a situation so that you think well of me. And he comments on how easily it's done and how often it's done. <clears throat> and maybe you never do that, so maybe, maybe you're, like, you're all like mystified, like I have no idea what you're ever talking about. Well, I can't imagine I would ever do that. I mean, if you think back to, uh, in many cases, you know, if you're married before you met your, your spouse, you know, you probably uh, made some effort to put your best foot forward. Uh, I'm not going to say to deceive the other person, but you didn't want to be as colorful as you might be. Uh, you, wanted to, you, know, you wanted to present a certain image that seemed especially favorable. He gives an example like this. Let me find it on here. Uh, he says... Why I, have had, why I have had to ask myself, do I tell a troubled friend in conversation or letter that I am praying for him or her? No one can deny that such assurances can genuinely encourage other believers in their distresses. And sometimes that is my purpose. I want him to know that he is not forgotten. But that is not the only reason. Enter Ziba. If I make a point to communicate such concern, such friends will likely think well of me and perceive me as a caring person. And though there are no big bucks in it, my Christian stock will go up a bit. Thus, my piety serves myself. He's suggesting that sometimes we can do the right things. And, and probably in some sense it's fair to say, because I made this statement a few weeks ago, that our motivations are never entirely pure. Our motivations are never really even entirely known even to ourselves. So in recognizing that, there are probably, on some level, what I do, I, I feel good about because it gives a favorable impression of me, and that's partly what motivates what I do. That's Zebaism. And Dale Ralph Davis would say, beware of it. The second 
lesson that he gives is beware of David's poor judgment. Uh, David made, he exhibited very poor judgment in what transpired when Ziba came to him. And it should serve as a warning to us as to uh, making poor judgments. Let me give you some scripture to this regard. Exodus says, this is when Moses is, uh, the Israelites have left Egypt. They're receiving God's law for the first time. One of the laws is, and you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. Uh, I will suggest that Ziba has just bribed King David. And David has asked him a couple questions, uh, but at the end of the day, he believes Ziba, and he rewards him with all the property that previously belonged to his master, that previously belonged to Mephibosheth. It blinded him from clear and sensible judgment. A second passage, Deuteronomy says, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the, dis to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who were in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. David did not follow that principle. David heard one man tell one story. He rewarded him for the story that he told. That is not good judgment. That is not sound judgment. Finally, if I reduce it to a couple of Proverbs, Proverbs 18 verse 13 says, If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Now that could mean a couple different things. It could mean that you uh, form an opinion before the one person has even told you the whole story. It might mean that, or it might mean you, that you formed an opinion or issued a verdict after only one person has told their side of the story. So verse 13 is followed up in the same chapter with verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. That's a great proverb. I've mentioned before that my dad was really good about that proverb. Because I can remember one especially notable incident as an adult in my life where a story came out among somebody that our family knew well and it seemed to be not a very good story about this individual. And so I jumped to the conclusion that what was being said was entirely wrong. It couldn't possibly be true. And, and my dad uh, said, I think we should wait and, and let's... Let's see how the evidence comes in. Let's see uh, how this story plays out a little bit fuller before we issue a verdict or, or express confidence in a certain way, a certain outcome. And as it turned out, the story was true. So my dad was really good at that. I think I've gotten better over the years. And the principle is when somebody tells you a story or gives you some bit of uh, truth or or make some charge or accusation, and Dale Ralph Davis says, I don't care if it's your best friend. 
I don't care if it's somebody that you have no reason to doubt them. They've, they've, never, they've never deceived you in the past. If you're hearing something and forming a verdict on the basis of what one person said, you're not doing justice to your neighbor. It doesn't mean that you're saying your friend has told you something untrue. It just means you owe the other person justice. And justice requires that you hear more than one person. And David didn't do that. And so it serves as a warning to me. Before I believe anything that is said about any one person, I'm interested to know what the other person has to say. I mean, marriages that break up, you know, isn't it that one person, one person can tell a story about all that's wrong with the other person, and they're probably right. Or they may very well be right, because you know what? You didn't marry a perfect spouse. And I'm not a perfect spouse. And so if you want to find fault, we can all find fault with each other. But to get the whole picture, you need to hear more than just what one person has to say. So Dale Ralph Davis says, it's a word of caution to us to exercise better judgment than what David demonstrated in dealing with Ziba. What are your comments and questions? Now we'll, we will pass around the mic if somebody has an insight or a comment or an observation. Anyone? I was just going to sure. add to that. I mean, it's kind of interesting that David, who uh, kind of had a history of conniving, would make those errors in that direction. You, you mean like than, with Bathsheba and Uriah and all? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 You know? And, well, in fact, he told Hukdai to, you know, pretend like you're Absalom's friend. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, it would, you know, it's yeah. interesting that he would... He would jump the other way. Yeah. Yeah. We've all been guilty of deception in different ways. Anybody else? Next week will be, uh, next week we're going to be, and part of what we're going to do is, is going to be absolutely fascinating. Uh, I initially thought we would be able to do it this week. But it's so interesting, I thought, I, I don't want to cut it short. Um, so we'll, we'll put it off till next week. On, your, on the front of your bulletin, it shows you when, when we're meeting next week. If you save this, just in case you forget. Uh, next week, we'll do 4 o'clock. There'll be our regular Sunday school classes, 5 o'clock worship. Um, John, our son John was home from Louisville. He just left uh, today uh, to go back home. He's working on a, a PhD at Southern Seminary. He's, uh, he's the Old Testament scholar. Uh, he's way past me, way. I'm, I'm a layman. I tinker around with stuff. And I was sharing with him, you know, what I saw coming up in our next episode. I'm like, I find this positively fascinating that every one of your English translations, the way it translates something, is just not right. But if they translated it right, it would be so shocking the Bible translators said that can't possibly be right. And so they rely on a rabbinical commentary or side note that says, well, it must mean this. Because that would be so shocking if we translated it that way. And I ran that past John, who he can read Hebrew and he translates Hebrew. And he, he was going over that and he's like, and he, he looks up scholars that I can't look up because they, they talk Hebrew, like use Hebrew words and stuff, like not translated into English they're like reading the Hebrew and I, that doesn't do me any good and he's looking it up and he's like that's exactly right and he was fascinated by it as well 
but it actually makes perfect sense. Even though it's so difficult and shocking, it is such a demonstration of, of one of the core truths of what is so essential to the Bible, it will be that interesting. So that's kind of, I don't always leave you on a cliffhanger, but dude, it is great. It is good stuff. It is really good stuff. Let's stand to be dismissed in prayer. You guys have gotten a lot quieter since, they, since we got here and do comments and questions with a microphone. So we've got to figure that problem out before we get home. All right. God, our Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you uh, that David, in many ways, modeled exactly the kind of ways that we want to be. We want to be humbled before you.